Hi guys, my name is Frank Chaparro, Senior Correspondent at The Block. You might know me as Frankie Scoops or Fintech Frank, but hopefully now you'll get to know me as the host of The Block's new podcast called The Scoop, made especially for decision makers and thrill seekers in the crypto market. Each week, I, along with one of my cohorts here at The Block, will talk with CEOs, innovators, and builders across the crypto market. Michael Morrow is probably one of the most veteran crypto traders out there. In this episode, Ryan Todd and I welcome Moro, the CEO of trading firm Genesis Global Trading, to explore how the firm gatecrashed crypto way back in 2013. Then Moro says folks would show up with briefcases full of cash to make an over-the-counter trade. We also talked about where the firm is going next. Last year, it opened up a lending desk, which has originated over $1.5 billion in crypto-backed loans. And now, Moro says, the firm is looking to expand its suite of offerings, building what could become one of the first crypto full-scale prime brokers. We finished with a conversation on how he expects shifts in the market to impact the business and where he sees the potential for pockets of risk to form within crypto lending. I'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app in the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to start supporting Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to on-ramp fiat. No more waiting five days for your ACH payments to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. It's also a favorite of the block analyst, Steven Zhang. He uses Cash App when he goes to Chipotle and gets money back. He saves every time he eats a burrito. That keeps Steven happy. That keeps the block happy. And that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. You can also use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, Chipotle, as I said, Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, and Dunkin' Donuts. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play. I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks uh, for tuning in, everyone. This is The Scoop. You could have been listening to the thousand other crypto podcasts that are out there, but you've chose us, and we appreciate it. And we have a great, very special guest today, Michael Morrow, the CEO of Genesis Global Trading. And of course, I'm joined by my colleague and good dear friend, Ryan Todd. And we're going to be diving into some very interesting things. Michael has been a longtime friend source consigliere in the crypto world to me. When I first met him, I didn't know the difference between a piece of biscotti and a Bitcoin. And and he's been incredibly influential in the entire space on all things OTC, trading, uh, exchanges. I mean, you name it, Michael is your guy to unpack and unearth some of the most pedantic, wonky, and, and frankly, from my perspective, interesting topics in the space. Michael, thanks so much for, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, no, it's, it's, in, it's, it's a great pleasure to have you. Um, let, let's talk a little bit for our guests about Genesis. It's a, it's a name that a lot of folks might not know in crypto trading, you know, millions of dollars worth of crypto, probably a month, multi-millions of, of dollars worth of crypto every month. Um, facilitating over-the-counter trades. What's the um, what's the origins story behind the firm? I mean, it dates back to second market, which was in equities, and 
um, kind of found its way to crypto. Let's let's sort of walk through that. All right. Well, we'll go way back. So it's like 2015, I think. This is oh, earlier. Earlier. This is 2013. Earlier. Um, 2013 is when we started trading Bitcoin, but the true origin really kind of goes back to um, to, to Barry Silbert. And when he himself uh, discovered Bitcoin, this would have been in 20... That's the CEO of DCG. Yes, the CEO who, of our parent owns, company, yeah. um, Digital Currency Group, um, who discovered Bitcoin uh, himself, I believe, in around 2011. And um, he, uh, he, I think he's probably spent six months going from um, skeptic to interested to convert to full-blown evangelist. And then all throughout 2012, he wouldn't stop talking about Bitcoin in the office. At the time, Second Market was really focused on, it was a broker-dealer, focused on trading off-the-run, illiquid financial assets, things that didn't trade on an exchange, hard-to-value assets, which obviously sort of became very prevalent after the financial crisis, where certain things that used to be worth a dollar were no longer worth a dollar. And the, a secondary market was needed to, to help price things and, and to potentially transact. And so when he approached us and started talking about Bitcoin in 2012, and we didn't understand it. We didn't know what it was. A lot of the education 101 material that is available on the web today, not there. Frank Chaparro, not in the space. And so you try to figure out- I was very out, young back then. I was probably like <laughs> at my high school prom. That ages me quite a bit now. Um, but- for us, we just had to learn what Bitcoin was firsthand. And um, uh, Barry, what Barry did was, um, so Second Market had, call it 100 employees at the time. And they, he, he went out and, and bought a bunch of Bitcoin and gave every employee two Bitcoins. And he said, okay, I'm going to give you guys two Bitcoins. I want you to go and find a website that lets you create a, a Bitcoin wallet. Create your Bitcoin wallet, figure out how to store your private key and everything, and, and then send me your, your public address. And I will send you two Bitcoins to your public address. And said, okay. Once we did that, um, he said, okay, you got your two Bitcoins. Spend one and save one. So keep one for your future investment and find out somewhere to spend the other one. Gotcha. So all of us are Googling places to spend Bitcoin in like early 2013, right? And really like there wasn't a huge range of places mm -hmm. we can buy. You know, it was like alpaca socks. And um, <laughs> Was Overstock in the game yet? Overstock. I don't believe, I don't yeah. believe they were. Um, so it's really, really limited. So all of us ended up spending our one Bitcoin, which was worth like $80, $90 kind of at the time at like the same four or five different retailers. But that was really our first foray in, into figuring out how to hold, how to spend and private keys, don't lose it. That basic one-on-one type of stuff, we learned firsthand ourselves mm -hmm. by doing it. And then we're like, oh, this is just another financial asset, just as illiquid as most other things. Why don't we start trading this stuff? Mm -hmm. And that's how the trading desk was born. But so then back then, I'd imagine, you know, Bitcoin obviously has this reputation for being tied to nefarious actors, you know, Silk Road and, and drug markets. Um, who are your counterparties right, back then? I mean, right now, I know a lot of them are other large trading firms. How, you know, as a regulated firm, a broker dealer, how did you go about engaging with some of the firms that would probably want to be on the other side of the trade back in 2013? It's a very good question. Um, and it, uh, it was certainly, 
an eye-opening experience for us who were only used to dealing with institutions, um, whether it be trading stocks or bonds or, or hedge fund interests and bankruptcy claims and all of the other assets second market was trading at the time. Well, Barry literally just gave us his Rolodex and said, here's every contact that I've made in this space since 2011, smile and dial start grassroots calling and saying, hey, we're interested in making a market. Let me know if you want to buy. Let me know if you want to sell to try to like drum up sort of the, um, the, the, the counterparties on either side. Now, a lot of the counterparties, to your point, were sort of the early crypto anarchists, the people who sneered at things like AML, KYC, onboarding, and you know what many of them would just hang up. Um, hey, what are you going to do with my information? Why do you need my driver's license? All of that kind of basic stuff. And, and so that was certainly a new experience for us. Um, for on the institutional side, onboarding and providing documentation, yes, that's a normal course yeah. of business. And it just was foreign to a lot of these guys. And so for us, it was, it was pretty scary. Um, we, we used to have people literally walk into our office with suitcases full of cash and say, I want to buy some Bitcoin. I'm not telling you who I am. I'm providing nothing, but here's my proof of funds, and they open up their briefcase. <laughs> what was the um, largest amount? Uh, I mean, guys that wanted to buy a million, two million dollars, kind of worth of Bitcoin, but providing absolutely nothing. Um, and then comes the explanation: No, no, sir. I'm sorry, we aren't able to help you. Um, the exit is right this way. But uh, we had more than one of those kind of instances, kind of early on, uh, which we knew that we're like, this is not fixed income. This isn't, this isn't equities. There's something a little bit different about this world, which, uh, which was clearly- But it's come a long way. Like since then, it's been, you know, it looks a lot More commodities different. than equities, I would say, too. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And, and yes, it is dramatically different. I think in 2013, and 2013, if you remember, was also the year when Bitcoin kind of went from like $80 to like mm -hmm. 1200 1300 Mt. Gox. Just before Mt. Gox imploded, uh, that was early 2014, kind of when it happened. And just like the magnitude and the speed of the moves were just like, what is this thing that we've, we're, we're starting to kind of trade? And then when Mt. Gox happened, I think we really thought um, that Bitcoin was going back to like 100 bucks, kind of where it was pre all of that stuff. And... If you had told me in, you know, 2014, 2015 that like the CME was going to have a Bitcoin futures product out in a couple of, I wouldn't have believed you. You know, we were so far from where we thought like the CMEs of the world would need to be in this asset class to get there. Um, it might and, have been the case that we moved a little too far or rather a little too quickly going into 2017 with the rollout of futures. And now here we are with almost every day, there's a new announcement that there's going to be another future product rollout tied to this market which or another is, exchange some launch. Some getting pulled. Yeah, and some getting pulled. Yeah. Which, which to me is amazing. Um, I would have thought that um, an old like Chicago institution like the CME um, would have eventually entered as opposed to leading the pack which typically isn't the mindset, right, of established financial institutions. It's they let startups kind of go out and kind of do their thing, and then they figure it out and they kind of take over. But the, the CME decided to take a leadership role in kind of doing it. And so were they potentially early? Sure. But I think 
you know, they basically now have 100% market share yeah. um, in the uh, in sort of the traditional futures uh, futures market. And so um, I'm sure they're reaping the, the spoils now. And just thinking about across the trading landscape, now you guys are not alone in this world. You have Jump, you have Jane Street, you have all the Chicago prop shops in this market, making markets and, and over-the-counter trading. Um, if you think about what it looks like today, how are you differentiated outside of your experience for being in this market for so long? Um, and how are folks and firms in OTC um, you know, maintaining their competitiveness in this uh, sort of you know, market that's a little... You know, we've come down, we've drawn down 60%. Um, I would, so let me, let me take off my Genesis hat for a second and just try to take a, um, a 30,000 um, foot view on the crypto OTC space generally. Spreads um, have, were pretty wide in 15, 2016. I think the, the 2017 bull market certainly um, opened the eyes of a lot of the the prop traders and kind of a lot of the Chicago firms that you mentioned into entering the space. And I think just the level of liquidity and the sophistication of the participants have certainly helped to bring down spreads, better execution across the board, um, much better experience for, for buyers and sellers, which naturally happens in any marketplace where there is money to potentially be made. Right. And so on the whole, you know, 2017, I think, was the huge catalyst for, for a lot of people. 2018, you would think that in a market in which 80%, 90% price drawdown would cause people to disappear and potentially for spreads to come back and normalize a little bit. It didn't happen. The exact opposite happened. We saw more entrance into the space. We saw more exchanges yeah. even open it's up OTC desks, crowded. right? even on an agency basis. And so, you know, even in a bear market, we started to see more competition, more entrance, uh, more liquidity providers. And so I'm not sure whether, well, I'm not sure. I, I, I actually believe that spreads are not going to go back to where it was. Um, yeah, that spreads that so. are only going to go one way. And that's just closer and closer to the spot market over time. What does that mean? It's for bad news for you guys. What is that? Well, all the OTC on, on one sense, yes. On the other hand, you're always banking on the idea that you'll just do more trades. So volume should be higher to kind of compensate for tighter spreads. And that helps overall liquidity, volumes, market is bigger. And so we're, we're just taking our piece of a much bigger pie, even though each trade might yield less in terms of percentage on the PL side. Uh, I think different firms react differently to kind of the changing landscape when the when the jumps of the world kind of enter the space. I think firms that um, are much more electronic and technology kind of oriented, they try to compete. They try to kind of staff up on their tech side, build a, a smart order router that yeah. is that much more efficient and can route through different fiat currencies and, and crazy pairs to kind of arrive at the best price mm -hmm. um, in, a, in a bid to try to like squeeze out just a little bit more than everyone mm -hmm. else. And there's also a, an idea to, hey, let's just do trades. 
even if the spreads aren't there and, and it's not justifying the risk of the trade, yeah. spreads are coming down, but volatility isn't exactly decreasing. And right? some firms are even offering products, different right? types of swaps and derivatives. And so you either compensate via tech and try to say, hey, I'm just as good as Jump or Jane Street or whomever, or you go the other way and say, okay, what else can we do? What um, what other additional services that or products can we provide? Mm-hmm. So, which is kind of where the the CFDs and the non-deliverable forwards and some of the other products that I think that's kind of the route there. that you guys have taken. I mean, when so, you think about electronification, that's not necessarily where you guys have headed. That hasn't, and and frankly, even in 2019, most of our trading is still OTC. Um, so we don't face the exchanges very much at all. Um, and, but I think that, um, the, the firms that have built in the connectivity to 20, 30, 40 different exchanges, frankly, um, you know, certainly have a lot more access to that exchange liquidity given our regulatory position with sort of the, the broker dealer and the bit license and whatnot, um, our thresholds as to which exchanges we can comfortably work with. Yeah. I remember um, when we talked about this when we first, well, well, not before you got this shiny new office here in, in Midtown, um, and we spoke about how you guys wouldn't put more than a million, five million on exchange because it's just too risky. Are we still, well, I think that conversation was probably at the end of maybe early 2018. Are we still in that spot in terms of, the exchange market structure being so fragile? I would say it's pretty barbelled in the way we look at exchange risk. I think the the guys that have been around for a few years and the guys that have kind of proper licensing regulation of themselves, we work with, we trust, we'll leave capital there. That's fine. But I think there's also a long tail of, of exchanges, which we just are less comfortable. And not only are we less comfortable, um, it, it'll be the exchanges that our regulators would have questions about why are you parking assets at that exchange or that exchange. And if we have a difficult time explaining why we're comfortable, yeah. um, that tends to kind of raise red flags with our regulators, right? And so we oftentimes find up putting our regulators hat on ourselves. Do they ever call and are like, what are you doing on the shitcoin exchange? Um, we get audited. Every two years um, by the SEC and FINRA both come knocking on our door and AML KYC is kind of the one big thing that they'll kind of look through from our counterparty files. And yes, they have questions as to who we're trading and why we're trading. And um, I need to be able to give good answers. A hundred percent. I think it might be interesting just to focus more precisely on what Genesis is up to right now. Um, Obviously, a year ago, I think, you launched this very impressive um, lending business. At the time, from my perspective, I thought it would feed into OTC. And it almost seems at this point that that's become the almost the, not the focal point, but certainly can stand alone on its own merit in terms of, uh, in terms of it being a strong business. Um, can you talk about the success of, of that over the past sure. year? Um, so in, uh, in 20... 14, actually, right after we started trading Bitcoin, we had um, on our balance sheet just a bunch of Bitcoin that we considered to be hold to maturity. Like, we're not selling this thing. This is our principal position. And we, so we were sitting on a bunch of Bitcoin. And, and we have 
friends and family firms in the crypto space that would come to us from time to time and say, hey, can I borrow 50 Bitcoins? Can I borrow 100 Bitcoins? And so it was, and sure, uh, we were long you know, a bunch of Bitcoins and said, sure, we'll, 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 we'll make the loan to you. And it was a much more sort of a cottage business kind of back then. And it really remained that way um, for, for, for years. In 2017, I had a conversation with, with Barry. I had been talking to him about wanting to create a lending business um, for some time as a standalone entity. And, uh, and Barry said, all right, let's, let's give it a shot. And so it was probably mid-2017 um, when we started to kind of put together the business plan and try to figure out what it would potentially take to launch this thing. And we were ready um, for launch in March um, of last year. I wish I could tell you that like I was some price savant that expected the 80%, 90% price decline. So a lending business might do really well. Um, no, it just... That's just, just the calendar just happened to line up that we were ready right after like, you know, XRP hit $3 or, or whatever it was um, in, in <laughs> early 2018. And I think the idea for the lending business, um, which uh, we call Genesis Capital, was it's not a bad thing to short. That this idea that like you short something, you're a hater, or you don't believe in the asset class. Or you don't believe in and and fundamental guys. Oftentimes, and 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 crypto does not lack passion um, for for people who believe in their coins of choice. Passion psychosis. <laughs> um, and the idea of how could you let somebody short? That's not that's anti moon, right? Um, <laughs> and this idea of kind of getting the marketplace comfortable with the idea that like. The idea of going long or going short exists in every other market. Right. And um, as a cryptocurrency becomes more of a mainstream asset class, um, we need to still come up with the same products and services that investors get in every other asset class. They'll come to expect it in crypto. And that a borrow market provides healthy two-way price discovery. And it allows, obviously, people to go long and go short. And you have the ability to turn Bitcoin into a productive asset. For the first time, you can now lend Bitcoin and actually end up with more Bitcoin because you'll get more Bitcoin in-kind interest in return. And then at the same time, the market was starting to mature to the point where people who wanted to be short entered the space. Lending in 2013 would not have worked. Um, shorting is, is a technique that like a lot of professional institutional money managers use. We didn't have those back then. And I think the 2017 bull market, in addition to the flood of market makers, a lot more institutional money came in, whether it be the standalone crypto funds or um, traditional money managers that happened to add a crypto product um, or whatnot. And, and they were buying, going long, going short and everything else. And so we had our customer um, to, to, who would utilize it for shorting. And so 2018, we said, all right, doors are open, come borrow. And, uh, and as you might imagine, a lot of our first cases were speculators um, who were borrowing to, to short. Um, now, my guess is most of them, if not all of them, were still net long. Right. Um, they still had some net long exposure, um, but they didn't want to sell it for whatever reason. They'll short it as a hedge. Maybe they were long a futures product and short the spot and to, to hedge or to arb out some exposure. Um, 
And then the business kind of took off from, from there. I'm sure the bear market acted as a tailwind. Um, but um, the, the tremendous kind of growth and interest, you know, uh, has, has taken us to, to where we are. But even with the, the bear market, when you just look at, I mean, thankfully, we know you guys are the 800-pound gorilla because you guys publish what's going on in your book, the volumes, all, t- all that type of stuff. And you see these numbers, they're quite eye-watering. I mean, $1.5 billion worth of origination. Is that from this most recent? Com- cumulative, oh, I cumulative. believe. Cumulative, yeah. but from the most recent report. Right, yes. right. Uh, 40% outstanding loan growth since 3Q. Uh, you have about 180 million loans outstanding. Uh, when you see these numbers and the markets, considering the market sentiment starting to shift, um, but the growth is still there, is there... What, like what's driving that, that use case still relative to other options in the market that's um, starting to spring up? So I'll, 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 I have a hypothesis, and it's kind of one I've held during the 2018 bear market. It was like, look, our lending business is doing great in a bear market. What happens in a bull market? What do the speculators, the short guys, um, they go away, and maybe the pie is bigger, but what happens to our loan book? Do we lose our customer base? And so... We were looking at use cases. Why are people taking out borrows? And interestingly, there's a split between people who borrow Bitcoin and people who borrow alts. Bitcoin is predominantly used either for working capital purposes and or like or arbitrage market making purposes. There's almost no speculative on the downside. No people who are thinking the Bitcoin price is going to go to zero. On the other hand, if Ether, Litecoin, XRP, um, some of those alts, um, you will see people who will speculate from time to time who think that they're overvalued, mostly because they have their overvalued relative to Bitcoin. And um, whenever you see a price pop, you'll see, you'll see that um, the kind of net scenario sort of play out. So I think that in the bull market, while the speculators may certainly go away and, and hopefully they do because they don't get run over um, on the short squeeze scenario. I think the pie regarding working capital lending gets bigger. I think there'll be a lot more market makers, which will need borrow um, to help kind of help settle and do the float transactions. That'll be bigger. And it's actually played itself out. Um, so I'll, I'll give you an update even on this new report. Um, so uh, as of um, March 31, we had 181 million, Right. And then we had, so, but the cutoff date was March 31. What happened first week of April? We had Bitcoin price run, yep. crypto price run. And so we were seeing kind of real time, like what happens to our loan buck? So the Bitcoin shorts, the little that we had closed out and some of the alt guys closed out um, and then the, in, in the price run. But then what we saw was we saw more working capital loans mm-hmm. come out and then we saw shorts in, in alts. And so shorting in interest in, in that took off. So here we are on uh, April 23, 23rd. Sound about right? Um, Sounds good to me. Our loan book is, cl- is uh, just about quarter billion. Wow. Um, so we're at 250 million um, up from that 181 that we just had um, wow. just a few weeks ago. And so the hypothesis around, hey, is it just for shorting? It's, it's, it's turned out Literally to not, not be the case. Up. Yeah. It's not reality. And that um, the loan book 
and, and businesses like ours should perform, continue to perform well, even in a, in a rising price environment. Mm-hmm. Something else to call, call out from that recent lending snapshot, uh, the report mentions uh, market makers and high-frequency trading firms coming in. What's the profile in these types of uh, shops? Is it more crypto-native or is it uh, your more traditional legacy Chicago-type operation? Or a blend of both? It's, it is a combination of both. I think the market makers, um, for the most part, are just pure crypto guys. Got it. The ARB guys, they will find price of inefficiencies in any market that you can possibly find. So you'll, you'll see the more the, the Chicago guys kind of playing some of that. Um, and you know, they'll, they'll, buy, they'll, they'll, they'll buy the future, short the spot, that kind of stuff, um, where they still need access to the, uh, to the spot borrow to be able to execute their, their strategy. Thinking about the trading side of the business, and, and we kind of hinted at it earlier in the conversation about how many firms are going electronic. They're you know, launching their own you know, GUIs to engage with uh, counterparties electronically, DRWs, Cumberland, um, that UK shop, B2C2, has done something similar. Why doesn't your firm feel the need to go that route, and, and how much opportunity is there for you guys to stay traditional OTC as it's been and also not get into, you know, new products and new derivatives? I think that um, for for us, our real focus has always been um, what's missing. What's missing from the landscape of market infrastructure that institutional investors are going to come and expect. And clearly in 2013, there was no OTC trading desk. Um, And then when we launched our lending business, there really wasn't anyone doing what we were doing. And so our heads are much more around the next service, the next product, as opposed to, hey, um, let's compete on the technology side with somebody who's been doing this for decades and decades with you know, a lot more experience, head count. What makes a firm, you know, I think we've talked about this before in the past, what makes a counterparty or a firm, hedge fund probably, more interested in trading with Genesis and that traditional sort of over Skype, wire the money uh, way than electronically? What is the profile of those types of firms and what makes it more advantageous to do that? It's funny. This is um, a little bit of a carryover from our old second market days. The counterparties that we deal with, certainly they're sophisticated. Certainly they have a technology bent to them, but they still need to talk to people. (laughs) They still feel very comfortable picking up the phone and say, hey, I want to buy 5 million. I want to buy 10 million. And while the orders will get routed and and we'll put it into the platform electronically, there's still tremendous value to kind of having that familiar voice on the other end of the line um, when you're moving seven figures, eight figures at a time. And so for, for us, where we've been really, really good at is sort of that client relationship, the service level, the experience, and, and dealing with a regulated broker-dealer. And that's kind of the, the missing piece is, am I dealing with, you know, do I have any AML KYC concerns about where these Bitcoins came from? Or, you know, are, are they properly regulated in, in, in it? 
Now, it becomes a much bigger issue the larger the fund you're dealing with because that's a larger compliance team, accounting team, legal that do a tremendous amount of due diligence on the counterparties um, before they're able to kind of trade with you. And so for, for a lot of them, it's, it's, it's worth seen as an extension of, of them as an execution partner, as opposed to a prop trading firm that is trying to scalp you. And so it's, it's much more of a relationship dynamic between us and our counterparties, as opposed to say, hey, these guys are really smart that I'm talking to. They're trying to, 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 you know, to not give me the best price so that they can make the best money. It's, 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 so it's much more of a how do we have that conversation and that relationship dynamic. Think about how you house all these separate businesses uh, pretty coherently, at mm-hmm. least from, from our angle. Is there an advantage to having a, a lending business, an OTC desk, a DCG, mm-hmm. all kind of working together? So um, there's clearly synergies between the trading and the lending side of the business. Right. Although, to, to, to Frank's point earlier, the lending business is a business that stands on its own. Um, it does not need the trading business um, and vice versa. Um, trading business has clients that lending does not, and lending has clients that trading does not. But they are very complementary. Um, to your point, sort of being part of the, the DCG umbrella, um, DCG now has 145 different companies in the portfolio. Many of them are trading clients, many of them are lending clients, and many of them are both. And so there is sort of that um, DCG network that we certainly tap when we look to expand our relationships and things like that. And, and obviously knowing the, the founders and CEOs really, really well, because they're a DCG portfolio company, certainly helps make it easier mm-hmm. on the, um, not just on the client prospecting side, but on the due diligence side as well. Knowing that DCG is an equity investor certainly gives us some comfort level um, on the credit that we would extend um, on many of these relationships. That's interesting. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. You mentioned that you guys try to, or at least think of your differentiated factor being looking at where the new market's going to be. A year and a half ago, it was lending. Well, what is it now? Seven, six years ago, it was actually trading crypto itself. Um, what's the next market you're looking at gate crash and how are you going to do it? I think that there's a lot of initiatives underway at Genesis. Unfortunately, I'm unable to talk about most of them. Mm-hmm. For Let's zero in on those ones that you can. I would say that I think the world, given the competitive nature of sort of OTC markets in general, the, the reason why we started doing prop trading in 2013 was because of the illiquidity of the marketplace. There was zero chance that I would have a buyer of a million dollars worth of Bitcoin and a seller of a million dollars worth of Bitcoin within the same hour back then. Um, it would have been one trade every few hours. And uh, we couldn't be like, let me call you back and then call somebody two hours later. That just wasn't an inefficient way to get anything done, which forced Genesis, our second market at the time, to have some inventory. Like we had, we had to have some on hand to be able to, to do transactions right then and there when the client called in. Over time, 
liquidity has certainly improved to the point where um, I don't really think you need to take a massive position um, at any kind of given time just to have inventory to trade. I think liquidity will continue to improve. To that, that actually lessens the risk profile of, of the over-the-counter market-making business. If you don't have to carry large amounts of inventory and kind of be susceptible to the price swings that may happen. And so in this world, I think the trading business certainly transforms. We're much, much more of a, we're not quite agency traders, but I think directionally, I think that's where a lot of the market, uh, the OTC guys will end up kind of going in a world in which you're lucky to make one basis point here, okay. two basis points there. Like what's the point in taking risk, right? Yeah. And then I, that I think furthers a narrative around Genesis being an extension of the client to try to bring about best execution, whatever that might mm-hmm. mean. So going in the way of some of these multi-dealer platforms. It could be. It could be. And marrying that, obviously, with our lending business. Right. And having the, um, the, the broker-dealer license, having our, obviously, our bit license, um, having our lending business that, you know, that is growing significantly. We'll add, um, hopefully... Got three or four different things in my head that uh, that'll that'll some of it will take time, um, but um, I think that um, we'll, we'll we'll end up at a place where um, we will uh, what will Genesis will look like will be a lot more close to what Wall Street institutions, the biggest hedge funds, are more used to seeing. What the, what they're used to working with, like mm-hmm. a traditional prime broker, um, maybe you'll look like an internet or something. I think that. Um, directionally, I think that's correct. That's interesting. Right. Frank, you mentioned differentiation. Uh, let's talk about competition, at least from the lending side. It's heating up. It's heating up. I mean, you guys were really the first. And then yeah, now you see it on the decentralized. and non-custodials. Oh, yeah. Going in. Yeah, decentralized and DeFi is catching up to you. <laughs> What's... um. He's, he's uh, shaking his head. <laughs> <laughs> I just started getting... We, we're all, we've all got bit by the DeFi bug over at the block. Uh I'm not convinced, at least from, from an institutional standpoint. I mean, it doesn't offer KYC, AML properties, which is a no-go from my Do you even see that as a threat in terms of some of these decentralized lending platforms? I, it's much more of a science experiment Agreed. for me. Um, more than it, I'm fascinated by it and how it turns out. Um, uh, my view on like decentralized exchanges and some of this stuff, and, and this comes from conversations with some institutional accounts. It's 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 a little bit, um, gosh, um, it, it sounds bad when I put it this way, but institutions need to have somebody to sue. They need to be able to point <laughs> totally. legally to a contract totally. and say, hey, you were supposed to do something and you breached the contract. This idea, it's decentralized and so no one is responsible. We are our own fiduciaries. Right? So that's what it, either no one or everybody is responsible yeah. Just doesn't work in right. sort of corporate America. And so in in that context of you have a, a legal contract and relationship between a buyer and a seller or a lender and borrower, and, and if something goes wrong and you have to take them to court, um, you need to kind of have that legal venue to be able to, to point your finger and say, you were liable for this, that, and the other. And in the absence of the ability to point to any one person company, it almost falls apart. Like the whole thing is like, 
you because these guys fear the worst case scenario and kind of build up from there. If the worst case scenario is we can't do anything because nothing is standing behind this, it tends to not work. But I said, I'm fascinated by how this whole thing works. And I think it could potentially work at the retail level. And frankly, 80, 90% of crypto is still retail, right? right. That's a big enough market for, for folks to kind of disrupt. So I'm watching from the sidelines with more like keen interest more than anything else. It's a fair point. To That's your point about um, platforms, the other platforms that are exist that are sort of more of the custodial centralized model. I think that certainly... Um, Many of them, or most of them, play in a different market than we do. Um, they onboard retail clients, and, and they'll take a little bit here, a little bit there, and sort of try to aggregate Bitcoins or whatnot and, and, and make a big loan to an institution. Um, we certainly work with them uh, on certain instances if they have a, a well-priced loan available for sale, uh, for, for, for borrow. Um, we will work with them. And so we're, we're much more partners in a lot of different ways than like direct competitors. And frankly, that's no different than the OTC side. I mean, DRW, yeah. Circle, we've traded each other for years and years and years. And, They're some of your biggest counterparts. Oh, yeah. And, and it, it, I, I, I actually think that in many ways, it would hurt us if they went away. There's not that many counterparties you feel comfortable trusting a $5 million trade with to settle properly. And so years of working together in that trust in a trustless blockchain um, is still incredibly important in the world of business, right? What do you think over the past seven years that you've been doing this, the toughest trade has been or the worst trade? Oh, gosh. It is when you have a very good client, somebody who's bought, call it 50, 100, 200 million dollars um, worth of Bitcoin, who suddenly comes to you and wants to buy five million dollars of bitcoin gold <laughs> right it is uh illiquid all a volatile thinly traded asset and but it is one of your best clients and you have to try to do your best to make a fair market that wouldn't offend the client Right, because in reality, you're just like I don't even know where to price this thing, <laughs> right? Um, but like, you also don't want to offend the client hey, with can, the way. Can you, you even ask why? Is that, yeah, is why that? the frick do you want to buy this thing? <laughs> um, I was not. I'm not the guy that yeah. was on the phone, but um, I, you know, it's most of the time it's okay. Here's the price, right? It's 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 it should be no different than Everything any other trade that you do, but trying to fill that without um, quoting some crazy spread. Less about Genesis making money, but it's more about Genesis not losing money um, <laughs> in that scenario because your ability to, to hedge Bitcoin gold at a $5 million clip is, would be, is a challenge. But that would be an example of these difficult to, to buy trade. $5 million worth of Bitcoin. That size. Yeah, that's insane. That would be, um, this was not this year, um, yeah. as you might imagine. Gotcha. Um, but uh, during the crazy time, it was when Bitcoin gold was four hundred dollars, right? Like <laughs> the uh, hassling on that, days of this market. That kind of happened. But back to your earlier point about other competition, right? Um, what I think happens is that as you've seen spreads come down on the OTC side, rates are going to come lower and tighter on the lending side. Of course, yeah. that's already starting to happen. It's more competition, and, and I'm not 
you know, um, that's just a natural progression in the market. And again, I don't think it's a bad thing for, for the overall space. What I do think it happens, and I'm a little wary. Yeah, there's only so many levers you can pull. Are, are you worried? Is is okay, that loans ratios. become mispriced? Right. Is that Dip risk gets mispriced relative to the counterparty credit? And it'll be the mini version of like the subprime crisis happening at a much, much bigger at a faster pace because these companies are smaller and so they can make decisions faster. And so you'll see sometimes firms that'll like offer high rates, like introductory right. rates just to buy customers, right? And, and then you're like, okay, but what's the other side? Well, you start to lend cheaper um, than you should. Um, maybe your collateral management isn't great or you start making some loans that are unsecured, uncollateralized, right. and they want to write a big ticket. And so you start chasing some of that. I think you're going to see it. I think you're, <laughs> I think what does it, it look like? I mean, if we're going to liken I'm, it to subprime, I'm going to say I, I, that's got to be some level of devastation Yeah, at, at our world level. Yes, it would be. And presuming that, the lender is somebody of some size. You know, where we are, maybe it's, it's, it'll, it's a blip in the curve, but it, as the marketplace kind of continues to grow and I think competition heats up and you start just buying customers with cheap rates. Right. I, I could 100% see the moving down the credit cycle a little bit and you start lending to people at rates you probably shouldn't. I don't know why this wouldn't happen in crypto when it has happened in every other um, financial services market. Um, On the other hand, for us, like, I think we have 75 to 100 borrowers, okay, right now. And so our average loan is call it $3 million, $4 million, kind of somewhere in that area. I actually don't think our addressable universe for the super prime credit is that much bigger. Sure. I don't think this number is a thousand counterparties that we could possibly lend to, given who we want to lend to and given the size of the space. Now, the space size is going to grow, and hopefully we continue to attract those guys. But, I, but chasing that 101st borrower, 102nd borrower, um, just to acquire customers, that's how you lose. Um, yeah. So I care much more about risk-adjusted returns than the overall size of the portfolio or what the origination numbers might be. Um, so I'm very, very kind of mindful of, of that. The lending business model itself is quite simple. I mean, there's not that many levers to pull to, on, to compete against, I guess. Uh, the market's still in the early days of figuring out how to rationally price uh, risk and counterparty risk. Uh, you mentioned risk-adjusted returns. Have those tightened recently? Like, what, what's what are you guys seeing on that front? Yeah, I think there are counterparties that will come to us and say, "Hey, so and so is lent offering me two and a half percent uncollateralized Bitcoin loan." <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, can you beat it? No. <laughs> you know, like, and we have to be comfortable. Who saying are these no. people giving those giving those those terms out? I don't know. I don't. I don't know them. Yeah, but um, I would guess that some of them are exchanges. Right. Interesting. To try to get more exchange trading volume, providing some credit to their customers. I I could sort of see that scenario. Classic customer acquisition grab. Um, But like, I that's that's something we just can't chase. We we can't make that work. Yeah. Even if I had a lender at one percent, which I don't. Um, making an unsecured loan at two and a half percent doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, I think doom and gloom, potential devastation is a great place to end. 
I'm not guaranteeing that. That's not what I said. Uh, but <laughs> small potentials, chance. potentials as to a growing market and mispriced lending. Got it, Michael. Well, let's, let's end on a positive note, actually. Yeah, sure. Why not? Market sentiment shifting. Is someone going to bring out some booze? <laughs> Scotch. Yes. What's the uh, positive note? Uh, just shifts in market sentiment. How's that? impacted the business. You gave us some of the numbers. Yeah, I think, you know, all it really takes is like three to 5% move to get people fired up again. Right. Um, and I feel like once we start getting fired up, it's not going to stop at, you know. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. And and look, uh, there are some people that's still calling this move from three to five a dead cat bounce. Yeah. Right. They'll, they'll still feel that way. Uh, but like, I, I what do we feel, need to get to where we, we realize that we're over that hump, you think? I still... 6K? Oh, yeah, I think 6,200, whatever the big support level was yeah. in 2018, we can kind of get through that. Um, there might not be much um, until like 10. But like people remain bullish. I don't know anybody who, even if they sold their Bitcoin, think that like are no longer bullish about the asset class regardless. And I feel much better infrastructure-wise about where we are in 2019 than we were in 2017. Um, so hopefully entrepreneurs are smarter, more companies are entering the space, and uh, we're much more ready to kind of handle institutional demand the next time around. And all the Floyd Mayweathers and Paris Hiltons. Paragon. Yeah. Keep, keep out. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one in finance on the App Store for almost two years. It was the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin. And it's still the fastest and easiest way to on-ramp fiat. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfer to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, Chipotle, Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, Dunkin', local coffee shops, and a whole lot more. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play. 